3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, listeners. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast here on 3CR 855 AM. And your hosts this morning are Carly and Priya. Welcome, Priya. Hi. Hi, everyone. (laughs) How are you doing this morning? Pretty good, pretty tired. How are yeah, you? Yeah, no, great. Um, and it's the 5th of March, so I can't believe we're already in March. This year is just flying. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like just yesterday it was New Year's. Mm, absolutely. But I am so excited for this weekend because I'm going to Golden Plains. Awesome. <laughs> so hopefully we can play some artists today that we're going to be performing this weekend. Sweet. Um, and yeah, today um, on the show we're going to be playing... Um, a conversation that Kelia Kelly on the Black Block um, uh, recorded. And so Kelia Kelly is a native Hawaiian filmmaker and journalist, and she talks with Robbie Thorpe and Viv Marlowe about the parallels between Indigenous and colonial histories and experiences between Naram and Hawaii. And then we're going to head into a conversation that you had, Priya. Yeah, so I spoke with Dilpreet Tugger from South Asian Today. Uh, Dilpreet is a journalist and has been amplifying some of the issues that are happening um, in terms of Islamophobic violence that has occurred uh, in India at the moment. So content warning for that interview because there will be a discussion of Islamophobia and Islamophobic violence, um, but a very important interview. Mm, absolutely. And then we're going to have Poro come into the show, um, and he's going to talk about Rise Up 2.1, Concrete Jungle, which is a fundraiser that's happening on Saturday the 14th of March, and that's to raise money for the Mapuche and West Papuan resistance. And we're going to be joined by Yatu Widders Hunt, um, and she is a communications professional and founder of the online community Australian Indigenous Fashion. And she's hosting an event this Saturday, the 7th of March, from 2.30 to 4.30 p.m. at M Pavilion, um, and that's about storytelling um, in Indigenous fashion. And lastly? Yeah, uh, so finally we'll be talking to Bron from the Department of Homo Affairs and Charlie from Transaction Warang. Um, if you don't know about the action that uh, the Department of Homo Affairs did at the Mardi Gras Parade, you will after this. <laughs> and they have a fantastic article that was published on the Overland as well. So um, definitely check that out. And now we're going to head into a song. So this one's by Misha. Uh, it was just recently released this week, and it's called Twisting Words. Try to be stupid at times 
And that was Twisted Words by Misha. And you're listening to 855 AM 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And I think now we're going to head straight into the news headlines for the week. So unfortunately, Kate couldn't join us this morning. Um, But Priya, did you want to start us off? Yeah. So uh, first up, we have um, an update about uh, the horrible things that are happening around climate change. So Uh, A decade of insufficient political action on climate change means that nations must now do four times the work to stop the planet warming two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, new new analysis from the New Climate Institute in Germany shows. So to meet the goals in the Paris Agreement, we either need to do four times the work or the same in one third of the time. So in 2010, the world thought it had 30 years to have uh, global emissions of green to have global emissions of greenhouse gases, but today we know that this must happen in 10 years to minimize the effects of climate change. The bleak news follows a report that was released this week, which showed that the world will lose 50% of its beaches by 2100 if it does not reduce emissions. So 2020 is a critical year for climate change, with countries meeting in Glasgow in November for critical talks on meeting their Paris Agreement. And 23 people in immigration claimed to be Aboriginal calls to release them quickly. Papua New Guinea-born Camilla Ray man Daniel Love is at the centre of a landmark High Court case that could lead the release of up to 23 people in immigration detention, detention um, who are of Aboriginal descent. Mr Love and New Zealand-born Gungaree man Brendan Toms had their Australian visas cancelled in 2018 after being convicted of criminal offences and were set to be deported. But a High Court ruling last month determined that Aboriginal Australians cannot be aliens under the Constitution and thus cannot be deported. The High Court said Mr Toms met the indigeneity test set out by the court and he was subsequently released from immigration detention. 
but it has not yet been established whether Mr Love meets the criteria, meaning he remains vulnerable to deportation if he can't prove that he is Aboriginal. It was also revealed during the Senate estimates hearing that 23 others are trying to prove that they meet the indigeneity test. Green Senator Nick McCum, uh, who led the questioning of Home Affairs officials at the Senate hearing, said all cases should be reviewed as quickly as possible. Um, and finally, uh, the Trans March has been announced for late March. So in exciting news, Melbourne's first inaugural Trans March, which will take place on Sunday the 29th of March, uh, promises to highlight trans visibility like never before. The streets will be flooded with blue, white and pink and will take place outside the State Library of Victoria starting at 12pm. The march will be followed by a celebration concert in Federation Square featuring 10 local and emerging trans artists. Organisers hope that this year's march will become an annual event, which will grow each year as the trans rights movement becomes increasingly more important. They're currently asking for donations to help pay the performers, and if you're keen on chipping in, you can look up the Melbourne Trans March on GoFundMe. And that's all in today's news headlines on the 5th of March. Thanks, Priya. Thanks, Carly. (laughs) And now we're going to go straight into a conversation that Kelia Kelly, a filmmaker and journalist, had with Robbie Thorpe and Viv Marlowe about the parallels between um, Indigenous peoples and colonial history's experience between Nam and Hawaii. Um, We're talking to Kiara Kelly, journalist, filmmaker, native Hawaiian. Um, It's really nice to have you in here, Kiara. Can you tell us just a a little bit about that? You were telling me the other day about this mountain that's only partially above the the surface. Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea. Yeah, yeah. uh, There's been an ongoing resistance there to stop what's called the TMT, which stands for a 30-metre telescope. Uh, our mountains, we have Haleakala on Maui and Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa are on Hawaii Island or sometimes referred to as the Big Island or Moko Keawe. And uh, Mauna Kea is also considered our most sacred site because we have uh, our own creation story, right? It's called the Kumulipo. And in that story, uh, Mauna Kea is there is a part of the story, and we come after Mauna Kea. So we're, it's part of our genealogy, I should say. So what's gone on with the summit of Mauna Kea for about, mm, since the late 60s, late 1960s, um, which start, the, the takeover of that summit, by the way, started right after the fake statehood, which was in 1959, where they did this fake vote and said, now it's a state. Um, so... Within a decade, they were building telescopes up there so that they can, you know, what do they do with their telescopes? They want to look at God. They want to look at the universe. Never mind indigenous knowledge about the stars, indigenous knowledge about navigating the the largest ocean on Earth by the stars. Never mind us knowing our relationship to the stars. These people have a whole other kind of science that they practice. And what's happened is there have been quite a few telescopes built up there already, but this one that they're trying to build now is so big that it could fit all the other ones in it. It would be the second largest telescope on Earth. It's massive footprint. And I think it's like 18 stories high, this telescope. On an island where you're not allowed to build more than 10 stories, the telescope on the tallest mountain in the world, by the way, is Mauna Kea. If you measure it from the base, which is under the water, it's the tallest mountain in the world. They want to build an 18-story telescope on our most sacred place. 
which is also environmentally fragile because it's endangered species habitat. It's uh, got one of the water aquifers that makes life uh, livable. That means that you have fresh water over there is right under there. They don't care. That's their science, and to them, their science is more important than our knowledge and our history and our culture. So there's been an ongoing resistance for a long time, but this particular protest, this is the third go-around where it's people just camped out and blocked any attempt to move construction equipment up the mountain. This is the third time since, I'm going to say, 2015. There was a protest in October 7, 2014, when the state and the uh, Telescope Corporation tried to do a groundbreaking ceremony that was right where the protests started. They, didn't, they were unable to proceed, and it's been ongoing mm-hmm. since then. I think it's more about military than science, because you've got a big uh, military base there. Uh, it, it seems to me, that, you know, these, these things they build, they, they'll say they're for scientific purposes, but reality is they're not. Like things like Pine Gap in Australia, which is an American military secret base here right in the centre of our land and you know, and we've got a huge uh, telescopes here as well in Orange in uh, sort of mid New South Wales there's huge uh, telescopes there you know they're, they're looking for information you know and how to use drone warfare too that you know like what you know using those different types of um, weapons now. So I'm just wondering, like, it'd be, be a lot of it. Has the military stepped into the protests at this point? No. Uh, interestingly enough, and this always gets left out of the narrative, is, you know, Mauna Kea is this huge mountain, right? At the base of Mauna Kea is a place called Pohakuloa Army Training Facility. It's the largest live fire training uh, oh, site wow. outside of the continental U.S. It's massive. Again, Pohakuloa, that's like means, uh, it, it references the sacredness of the large rocks, okay, because Pohaku is stones. So, um, yeah, that's what they do in our most sacred places. They practice mm-hmm. war. You know, people don't understand. You think about Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, uh, all these other wars. They practice war on native people's lands before they go and do it to other people. All you have to do is look at what they've done in the Pacific, right, with the nuclear, with the atomic bomb, so-called testing. That's war. They've bombed. They've been bombing native people's lands for decades, many decades, before they've invaded some other country. So at the base of Mauna Kea is Pohakuloa, and so there's already a, ge- a geographic connection. I see military presence there, but it doesn't look like the military that you would see maybe even here but I know a military person when I see one, even if they're wearing civilian clothes. What what people, I think one of the takeaways about that industry, people think of uh, astronomy as some kind of clean industry, an innocent science where we're just looking at the stars. We're looking at the Big Bang, their theory of uh, creation, right? Uh, there are military applications probably for every single piece of those telescopes. If there weren't military applications, meaning weapons at some point in the food chain of that, they wouldn't exist because so much of that money comes from military money or Department of Defense. or you know, It all comes in from right. all these places, but it looks like something else. Yeah, cool. So as they weaponize outer space from our sacred mountains or from different places here, in, even in Australia, 
they make it look like something else, mm. right? Oh, we're just, ex- again, back to the explorer narrative, the discovery narrative of Captain Cook. It's the same story they keep telling. We're just trying to discover. But whose expense is that discovery at, right? It's at the expense of the first peoples, of the indigenous peoples of the place. They'll destroy our water. They'll destroy our lands, our sacred sites, so that they can look through the eyes that they want to look through, right? So tell us a little bit more about your documentary making and um, what other things have you done in the past? Oh, I've done and a lot what of are you, What's your plans in the near future? Well, I've done a lot of journalism. I've done way more journalism than documentary filmmaking because, you know, I mean, you and I, I've been filming off and on with you the past week for a, another project that's about Native peoples. But it's it's a tough thing to do Native filmmaking. I know that for a fact, not just from my personal experience, but just from what I see. It's hard to do the Native story in film. That's why another place where we're marginalized is in mass media, right? Uh, you know, we talk about the story of Australia not really being known because how do you represent yourselves if you can't even get your story produced, right? And usually it's going to be the non-native that steps in to produce a story about the native. It's very challenging for native filmmakers, and, and I can say even as a journalist, it's really, it's, it, as we have the Internet where it seems like there's more places to put stories, it actually has gotten harder over the past 20 years, I think. Okay. So that's, that's a tough, it's a tough get, but it's worth it to go for it, yeah. you know? Institutions would favor their own rather than promote new ideas in indigenous people. So you, to get funding to do these things, is, you're up against it. Well, you, it's very difficult to get it. Yeah. So, you know, they keep it amongst themselves and tell their story, make sure their story's being told. And sometimes they'll tell, they'll seem to be telling a Native story. I've seen plenty of Native, quote-unquote, Native stories made by non-Natives. You know, I, if it isn't coming from the Natives, there's always something really important that's missing, even if it's somebody in solidarity. I say if people who are filmmakers and writers want to be in solidarity with Native people's stories in film or any other kind of media, they should support Native filmmakers and writers and and allow them to tell their stories and allow us to do it the way we need to do it. Because we're going to always come through another door, right? We're not going to, we're usually going to come through a spiritual, cultural, ancestral point of view like that that's our world view we're coming from a different place like you said earlier it's totally different world views so even somebody who's in total solidarity with us what we really need them to do is support us to do our stories in the way we need to do them because it's going to look different it's going to feel different because it has a different agenda right we need to be uh, expressing our culture ourselves you know we can't uh, they can't tell our story Probably that story they really don't want to be told either. I, most not able people, you know, they don't know there's, there's a story there, our story. And, you know, it's a bit egotistical and uh, it's about me, a lot of their media and filmmaking, rather than the bigger picture. So you don't really get that crossover. Very rare. It's starting to happen a little bit now. I can see a, a bit of a change in the landscape on how films are being you know, presented. 
Well, you've had a go at a few filmmaking things. Robbie's a real leader that way as far as speaking out for a very long time. You know, he inspired me to um, speak out and have, you know, let those thoughts go beyond my brain, I guess. Um, when I first saw Robbie speak, speak out, yeah, it was mind-blowing for me. I'd never actually heard that. And I was waiting for someone to come out and give him a hiding. I thought that was <laughs> no, <laughs> to, no yeah. way. No, but you know, it's just just so vital. And when the more it happens, the more voices are heard, the more like you know, it becomes normalised. It becomes normalised for us. You've got to break through this stuff, you know. And I always believe. Our people got just cause here, you know. We can hear all this, appreciate all that support. At the end of the day, we've got to do it ourselves and, and present ourselves. And we're quite capable. We just need a few opportunities. You know, opportunities being snatched by these others. Yeah, it's about the the economic resources. Who has that? You know, it's not changed now from what it was 50 years ago. It's the same people have the money. They have yeah. the economic power and every other power that goes with it. So I think, but here's the different thing. And I think is there's more, as you were saying, allies and solidarity from, you know, non-natives or settlers, or I know what you folks call them here, but... Gabars. Okay. Whatever that means. No, I'm not sure what that means. No, that means government people. Okay, but, yeah. you know, there is support, right? Yeah, there is. No, you have not some solidarity, no. and where you can find solidarity, for me, personally, where I find solidarity, that means everything. Yeah. It's not about the ethnicity of the person necessarily. It's just as a native, true. as natives, we're just coming from this other place, and yeah. we can we always have to stay grounded in that, regardless of what's uh, made available to us, right? Because we're not doing this kind of a talk story right now just to like get ahead. We're hopefully getting some information and knowledge out there and get people talking and thinking differently. Right. If we can get help people shift in that sense, their own way of seeing, that's a lot. And you know, I think this radio station is one of the, a great example of that. And this this community, particularly uh, in Melbourne, um, has something going for it in that respect. And so, you know, you know, despite all those things, you know, we we seem to be able to survive with our integrity and. Uh, our spirit some way intact or something going on there. So, you know, it's hard to tell what could look like a really um, established tribal community, the way it's operating is something totally different, you know. Anyway. Well, I think it's it's an ongoing challenge for all natives, you know, to what degree one has to assimilate or be assimilated forcibly into something that's dominating them, right, and still be able to hold your ground. I mean, you guys have this death and custody thing going on here that's off the charts. Yeah. It is off any charts I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, you know, in the U.S. we have, there's Black Lives Matter. You know, in Hawaii, you know, we might only be 19 or 20 percent of the population, but we're like 60 or 70 percent of the prison population. And then in Hawaii, they take the men and even the women, not the women now, but they, they ship them off, so then it's another diaspora. Wow. They ship them off to those prisons in Arizona and the middle Midwest. Okay. So even when our guys get incarcerated, they're Dispossessed you know, ejected. at the same time. Yeah, right? they're wow. ejected from their homeland, right? Mm-hmm. So there's all these different things that get done. and I. But what you guys have going on here with death and custody is like, man, that is just, 
that's a whole story that people need to know about Australia. And that's on the back of these massacres, which were never resolved, never acknowledged, still un, you know, unhealed ancestor spirits out there. Yeah, and this, this land is, this continent is covered in our blood, and, and you know, those type of killings are being like individual, and the damage that does to our small population, even just an individual getting killed where they are, hurts us every, every time. There's great pain and all of that. And they know what they're doing deliberately. It's a very sophisticated system here of exterminating people. I think Hitler would be very pr- proud of Australia. Mm. Uh, in fact, he, he was impressed by Melbourne University's eugenics programs that they pioneered here in, in Australia and in the 30s. And one point, they, were gonna, they offered the Nazis part of the, the, um, the Northern Territory. <laughs> they offered yeah. that to the Nazis? And and other uh, other places they were offering the other type, you know coloniser types. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM Thursday morning breakfast, and that was a conversation between Kelia Kelly, native Hawaiian filmmaker and journalist, uh, speaking with Robbie Thorpe and Viv Marlowe about the parallels between Indigenous and colonial histories and experiences between those in Aram and Hawaii. And next up, Priya, did you want to introduce the conversation? Yeah, so, um. Um, so we'll be playing a pre-recorded interview between myself and Dilpreet Tugger of South Asian Today um, about the uh, ongoing violence in Delhi at the moment. So I'd just like to provide a bit of a content warning here for a discussion of Islamophobia and Islamophobic violence uh, in this interview. So today I'm speaking with Dilpreet Tugger about the current Hindutva pogroms and violent repression of Muslims in India. Dilpri, could you tell us um, a little bit about yourself and maybe intro yourself uh, to the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Dilpreet. I'm originally from India. I grew up my whole life there. I uh, work at the University of Melbourne right now. I am a journalist, so I use podcasts and videos and stories to really talk about um, stuff that really matters to me. Awesome. And you're the founder of South Asian Today. So could you tell us a little bit about the development of South Asian Today as a platform and what you hope to achieve through creating that space? Sure. So South Asian Today is meant to be an online multimedia platform for South Asian women and non-binary folks to really take charge of their own narratives and tell their own stories um, on their own accord. Um, It will be done through videos, through podcasts, through writing. And the whole idea is to actually talk about South Asian politics and to really sort of lead that conversation and not, I I really, I sometimes read stuff on the conversation or other um, outlets and it's usually written by people who've not even grown up in South Asia and that really bothers me. Because sure, like academic freedom is one thing, but when you talk about politics and identity, I think it's important that people mm-hmm. who identify as South Asian, they must talk about their stories. And that's why I thought of opening this platform. Yeah. And um, when you say women and non-binary voices as well, is that something that you see marginalized in South Asian media as well? A hundred percent. Like if you pick up any journalist uh, back home, it's a straight brown cis male like we hardly have women journalists and if they, if we do have women journalists they're usually bullied and um you know just threatened mm-hmm. and uh, it's really hard to do journalism in india if you are a woman and i think that was one of sort of the main conscious um steps for me to take to make sure that this space is free of uh, male voices because they have 
enough platforms. Yeah, you definitely, definitely need to use them. Yeah. Okay. So South Asian today, as far as I've seen, has been really committed to amplifying messages around the developing situation across India regarding the Hindutva pogroms against Muslims over the past few months. So could you give us a bit of context uh, about the issue for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with um, where this has all come from? Sure. So the Prime Minister of India, Prime Minister Modi, has had a pattern of um, Islamophobic schemes that he has done over the past. This is not new to anyone who is even remotely concerned with Indian politics. We mm. all know, and it's a known fact, that he has a lot of blood on his hands, and specifically Muslim blood on his hands. Mm. He has been accused of Gujarat riots of 2002, where thousands of Muslims died. Mm. And um, he was, in fact, banned from the United States of America from ever entering. Mm. And then he became the Prime Minister of 24, in 2014 of India, and then, of course, he was, you know, welcome again. So this is not new. I feel like his party, the BJP, and uh, people who work for him and people who follow him, they really have this idea of making India a Hindu nation. Mm -hmm. That is a literal uh, translation for Hindutva, in case someone who's mm -hmm. listening to this doesn't know. Hindutva stands for Hindu nation. They mm -hmm. want Hindu nation. They don't want minorities. And even if they do minorities, they want minorities to stay in their place mm -hmm. and... Um, Muslims is a like a far off topic for them. Like I don't even think they consider them as minorities. They just don't want them to remain in India. For them, 1947 should have happened, you know, properly. And they seem to think that why didn't every Muslim from India leave for Pakistan in 1947? Mm -hmm. And that's their main core sort of agenda. So coming back to your question, um, the Prime Minister of India has introduced this new act called Citizenship Amendment Act which basically at its core means that we want to know every single person in India who's a legal citizen. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine, fine. But when you, you know, mix Citizenship Amendment Act with the National Register of Citizens, that is a problem. Mm -hmm. Because what Citizenship Amendment Act does is that it says Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Jains, Parsis and Christians from Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and Pakistan are welcome to claim Indian citizenship mm -hmm. if they say that they have been religiously persecuted. Mm -hmm. What about Muslims? A refugee is a refugee. Yeah. But they say that, oh, you know, there are a lot of Islam countries. There are no Hindu countries, and we need Hindu countries. And they say it as if Hinduism is in, in any sort of danger. I think we have enough white people wanting to be Hindus. So, like, <laughs> Hinduism is not in danger. Yeah. And to say that your refugee status matters only when you're not Muslim mm. is extreme Islamophobia. And um, I think I'm very proud and happy for the fact that there have been protests all over the nation mm -hmm. against him. So people used to think that he's highly popular. No one will ever say anything against him. And um, if there is any um, good thing about this whole thing is that that's not true anymore. Yeah. And I guess how does this fit into the trajectory of Hindu nationalism more broadly that we've kind of seen develop over the past few decades? Because I think, um, obviously, Modi didn't come from nowhere. You're right. Um, I think even if we look at India's own history, there has been a lot of um, anti-Dalit um, societal norms, um, anti-blackness, anti-dark skin in our own country. Mm -hmm. And Hindu Rashtra or the love for Hindu nation is not new because mm -hmm. our history is tainted with 
a lot of caste system, a lot mm-hmm. of class system. And if you really look at them, you will find Hinduism at the core mm-hmm. of all those um, norms. I am a Sikh. Mm-hmm. And in 1984, like a lot of Sikhs were uh, massacred as well. And 1984 is quite a dark period in um, the lives of Sikhs. So mm-hmm. that, is also, that was also a Hindu extremism at its core. Mm-hmm. There was no other community harming us. Yeah. Um, it was Hindus. And then 1992 was Hindus, 2002 was Hindus. So when I think uh, the Hindu community in India really acts violently, and history has proved it again and again, it's not just my opinion, mm-hmm. um, that when you challenge it in, in any sense, mm-hmm. when you challenge the light-skinned factor, when you challenge how deeply uh, problematic caste system is, mm-hmm. it just gets violent. Yeah. Um, and that is a big problem. Yes, Modi didn't come out of nowhere and Hinduism didn't come out of nowhere. But the problem is that they're still here and, you know, this needs to, like, go. Yeah. And they still clearly have a purchase in the in the public mind. He's the prime minister. He's the yeah. most famous person in India. And that's shocking. And yeah. Very scary. Could you give us a bit of an overview of the nature of the violence that's been occurring? So who's involved, um, you know, who's been affected by it? And, yeah, how's the state been responding? The state itself is involved Mm -hmm. in this. This is a typical case of the state versus the citizens. Mm -hmm. There have been videos coming out of Delhi where you can see policemen pelting stones Mm -hmm. themselves. And policemen asking Hindu men to pick up stones and throw at mosques. Mm -hmm. So these are videos that are publicly available on Mm -hmm. Instagram for everyone to see. And yet that's not enough evidence, apparently, to um, cancel anyone or put anyone behind bars, which is obviously shocking. And that Mm -hmm. will make you believe that everyone's in this together. Mm-hmm. Everyone's in this together. There are citizens fighting for their country and people who rule the country are taking the country away from mm-hmm. people who care. Mm-hmm. There has been another video which has been making rounds on social media where you can see four to five policemen. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little graphic. Four to five policemen surrounding five to six Muslim men who are bleeding mm-hmm. And they're making videos of these Muslim men, and they are forcing them to sing the national anthem of India, which is Jangan Man. Yeah. And these men are on the verge of dying, so they're obviously singing it. Mm-hmm. But is that nationalism? Is that patriotism even? Like nationalism, that is actually, yeah, nationalism, what nationalism would yeah. look like. But is this how you love your country? Like, is this how you want people to love your country? Those men have we're born here. They're as Indian as you are. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to believe that. And three days ago, um, one of those five Muslim men died. Mm. So the police have killed someone on the streets openly and they are filming moments before their death. So how much more evidence do we need in the fact that this is all an organized, you know, set of violent attacks mm-hmm. against the Muslims, spe- specifically in Northeast Delhi. And a lot of people will tell you, oh, you know, Northeast Delhi is silent now. It's peaceful. Nothing's happening. Yeah, because they've moved to central Delhi now. Mm-hmm. So what's your assessment of the nature of the reporting that's actually coming out of India about this escalating violence? Because I've seen a lot of talk about clashes and the framing is something I'm interested in. That's a very interesting question because... I worked in Indian newsrooms, and one of the main reasons that I left India to come 
to Australia to do my master's, I, I honestly, I could have gone to any country. That's mm-hmm. how um, stressed I was working in those newsrooms because it felt very suffocating. Every story was, oh, Muslims are this. Every story was Pakistanis are this. Mm-hmm. And no one was really doing any journalism except for a few channels. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting about this particular incident or this situation or this anger is that internet journalism Mm -hmm. has really, really taken shape and young people have really taken charge and all these old men are really running for their money because no one wants to watch them anymore because Mm -hmm. they're honestly not making any sense anymore. Loving a political personality is one thing. Mm-hmm. Defending that political personality while you're seeing bloodshed on your Facebook feed every day, mm-hmm. it's blind love. And when you have blind love in politics, it's dangerous because then you end up defending violence. And violence against, we're talking minorities, mm-hmm. we're talking Muslim communities in India, and they have a really bad history. So when you have the guts to defend Modi time after time after time, despite mm-hmm. seeing what's happening. You know, that's that's blindness. And that's exactly what new online journalism is challenging, which I am personally loving. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there's a particular, um, not a channel, but a particular media outlet called The Quaint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this um, to be informative. If someone is interested to actually read more and watch more, then I personally would recommend The Quaint because it's mm-hmm. young people on the ground shooting on their phones, mm-hmm. not even carrying heavy equipment. They they are not University of Harvard or University of Oxford. Mm-hmm. They are just young people who are interested in journalism. Yeah. So rather than journalism dying, I think it grew mm-hmm. out, out of this anger, which is really interesting. Yeah, so... I guess in terms of the way it's been broadcast to the world, do you think that this issue has gained much traction or attention here in Australia or around the world? Um, It's a yes or a no kind of answer. I sometimes feel like countries like Canada or UK or even the US Mm. tend to have more like stronger Indian communities who tend to come together when something like this happens Mm -hmm. or At least I have seen that in my experience. But in Australia, I really, really feel like it's lacking, Mm -hmm. like very badly lacking. Mm -hmm. I can count the people I know in Melbourne who will do a protest with me. Mm -hmm. And um, you shouldn't be able to do that. There should be hundreds of people who should come forward to fight against something like this. And, um, yeah, that, that is something that is problematic. And that's something that's very hurtful as well, because you're not living in India, but you wish you were and when all this happens you really can't find your support systems Mm -hmm. and it's like a you know a rotational sort of sadness and trauma factor it's like feeling helpless Mm -hmm. um, about issues you care about but you really can't do anything about them because you are quite literally alone a lot of the times Mm. so in terms of yeah I guess like this inaction something that I've been thinking about is uh, South Asian diaspora politics and the importance of moving past Bindi and Roti activism, so particularly in relation to this issue. And maybe you can elaborate on what that means. Yep. So I think when we say, you know, Bindi and Roti activism, it's not saying do not talk about um, how saying Chaiti is just wrong. It's not saying do not talk about, you know, Bindi has significance and you wearing it to a festival may be problematic. We're not saying don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. The problem is you only talk about that. Mm-hmm. So your South Asian identity tends to only either flourish or get attacked or get angry when it is attacked by whiteness. 
But when it comes to really our problems, like our own political issues that we need to deal with, we I tend to feel like diaspora goes silent. And mm-hmm. I have felt this a lot of the times myself. Mm-hmm. It's not that I've just read a blog and I've made my opinion. I felt this in Australia in the last two and a half years mm-hmm. as well. And that that's just troubling because then it's it's just shallow activism. It's activism just on top because you want to be part of a narrative. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's changing anything. Mm-hmm. I have seen people who are like louder about how saying chaiti is so problematic. Mm-hmm. And then they would say nothing about 42 people have died in Delhi. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you can't help but wonder. It's about why are you so angry about chaiti and not about Muslims dying in your birth country or in your home country or mm-hmm. in, your, in your country of origin, like whatever it might be. Because I've seen like you, just because you've born in Australia, you're, you are Australian, but I think identity is beyond that. And people like to call themselves Indians as well, even mm-hmm. if they're born here. It's part of you. It's your ancestry. And if you're interested in politics, then I would like you to be wider and um, talk more and talk more about real stuff that's happening on the ground. Yeah, definitely. And so I guess I kind of want to pivot towards the actions that have been happening. So what have you seen both here and across the world that has been encouraging or positive from the diaspora in terms of, um, you know, speaking about this issue or providing support to Muslims in India? When I say that... um the diaspora hasn't, you know, turned up much in Australia. I would also like to uh, point out that even if five people have turned up, I would say, oh, yeah, five people have turned up. And Mm -hmm. it's better than no voice. Mm -hmm. And um, the diaspora has done some amazing stuff. The diaspora has been, you know, attending protests, which is step number one into, I think, any cause or any issue when protests have changed the world, like marches and rallies have stopped the governments from taking actions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, diaspora communities have been setting up funds to actually, you know, help people on the ground. Of course, money can't solve everything. Mm-hmm. But when your mosques have been burnt, when your hospitals have been burnt, when um, your identity has been taken from you, money does help. Mm -hmm. And it is a form of, um, you know, aid, which I think diaspora has been realizing that it needs to do that, even if it can't be on the ground. There are ways and it has recognized that. And I think that's a really good um, outcome of this whole situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if listeners wanted to find out more information about the situation, you already mentioned uh, the Quint, mm-hmm. um, but do you have any other recommendations for places where people can find out more about what's going on uh, in India at the moment um, and actually get a good picture of the situation and also maybe to support people that are being affected um, by these crackdowns? 100%. Um, there are a lot of really great accounts on Instagram Mm -hmm. that have been doing really good stuff. Um, One is called Fuck BJP. (laughs) Um, I think it it really brings, um, you know, people together to really talk about how, when you say fuck BJP, you don't say fuck the political party, you say fuck Hindutva. Mm -hmm. You are like, this is not where I want my country to land up. This is not India and this is not the India I grew up in. Mm There is The Scroll, which does really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Arundhati Roy published a really, really good article 
um, on scroll this morning. Mm-hmm. It's called, this is India's coronavirus. We mm-hmm. are sick. And it really will give you more information on um, what CAA and what um, these acts are doing. Yeah. The idea is to just divide people and conquer them. Mm-hmm. It's a British colonial idea. There's nothing new about it. It's just our own communities are doing it to our own now. Yeah. Um, there's NDTV, which is uh, one of India's oldest channels mm-hmm. and has often been hailed for being quite neutral. Mm-hmm. So I think I would say um, Quaint Scroll NDTV would be some great um, you know, places to begin understanding this issue. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, where can listeners find out more information about South Asian Today? www.southasiantoday.com.au. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. All right. Um, and is there anything else that you, that you wanted to raise that I didn't ask about or any other issues that you think it's important we discuss? I think he um, pretty much covered everything. But um, the, even the fact that this is a radio story is quite good because I have seen Australian media quite silent on the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked, I've interned in Australian newsrooms, and I, I understand why. They would, they would probably not have anyone to do these stories mm-hmm. because we are just not in the journalism workforce in this country. So I think people need to write for independent um, newsrooms, if, mm-hmm. even if you're not working as a full-time journalist, as my, I'm currently working on a story. So just probably keep pushing the narrative and keep talking about it and use whatever privilege you have right now to um, raise awareness on this. And um, they need to roll back the CAA NRC, and it probably should not go ahead ever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and keep up the fantastic work. Thank you so much, Priya. So that was a conversation that I had with Dilpreet Thugger from South Asian Today about the recent uh, violent attacks on Muslims that have been occurring in Delhi. And you're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast on 855 AM. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. <laughs> Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Three CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one thing at 3CR Community Radio, please subscribe now. Just a moment, 3CR Community Radio, Araja Al Ishtrakal An. Ningal Ungalin Samuhavanali, 3CR Kurt Kondir Kandir Kal, Rindri Nayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio I Gairanin, Oratangudam Elbumi Hai Kaotin. Hima Artanakrevetsek Iper 3CR Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR.
Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're joined in the studio with Pro Bibi to talk about Rise Up 2.1 Concrete Jungle Fundraiser that's happening on Saturday the 14th of March to raise money for the Mapuche and West Papuan resistance. Welcome, Pro. Hello. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for joining us this morning. <laughs> Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening at the moment in West Papua? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um... As we know, uh, last, uh, well, I'm assuming we all know that last year there was, um, West Papua uprising. I think, yeah, and a lot of, uh, it's like more than 200 West Papuan seeking asylum to Papua New Guinea. And there are heaps of, um, students, activists, and community that being arrested after that. And even there are six, um, activist leader has been relocated from West Papua to um, um, Kalimantan, or in English they know it as a Borneo, where is the West? Um, it's like Alcatraz of Indonesian jail, and also there's six um, uh, our students activists been held in in Java as well, and one of them is Indonesian. Um, named Suya Anta. So he's the first Indonesian being arrested because of, uh, supporting West Papua's self-determinations. And yeah, um, um, we do this fundraiser actually to help whatever we can really, um, with the medical treatment or with the legal fees. And yeah, it's, uh, the, the, we have we have good connection between here and uh, Indonesian activists, and we want it to be to be to be more supportive, more sustainable. And um, this is this is actually an initiative, like in relate to Rise Up, an initiative from from us, or the, our hip hop community and mm. um, a punk community here in Melbourne, because. Um, this is the only way we can help uh, the community that is through 
like throwing an event, social event, where it's a it's a win-win set to situation for everyone. Everyone's enjoying it, and then we raise the money, and their money will support these different courses. And that's why we want to expand more, not only in for West Papua. We want to help any community, um, but we're prioritizing our indigenous community community. And we know as well. Last year there was a uh, Mapuche resistance and the hundred days of, uh, of yeah, uh, Chile resistance and the heaps, the thousands of political prisoners. And we want to, ha- uh, we're working together with, um, Latin America Solidar- Solidarity ne- Network. And yeah, this is the way we can support them. And we know they have, uh, yeah, they need a bunch of money for legal fees, for medical treatment. And, yeah, uh, the next one will be we're gonna we, we're gonna help Wetsuten, mm-hmm. Wetsuten. So it's 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 on and on and on. It's sustainable, and we're gonna maintain it safe, so we can keep supporting people around the world. And that's how we can, you know, this is a, another angle of mass mobilization through arts. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we call it creative resistance. So yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And you are a part of the Change United Struggle Project. Yes. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, United Struggle Project uh, is the same. It's a, another um, project of creative resistance. Um, we find uh, performing arts or theatre as a medium of storytelling. So it's a, it's a project directed by Easy Brown from Combat Wombat and yeah she's, she's been traveling all over the world and um, witnessing you know all this injustice happen to op- oppressed community in in Africa in Kenya in Middle East in Cambodia in West Papua in South America and because she couldn't bring all these different um, artists street artists there to here because of the customs and visa and that and he see see reach out all these different community here who want to tell the story through um theater so yeah it's called the change the change revolutionary hip hop theater so last year not yeah last year we bring a story from Jap Wurung we have Rhiannon as well and we bring West Papuan story the story of a students uprising and there's us and also we bring a Woomera Detention Center story Palm Island story we bring um, Palestinian story as well there's Sophia um, who else uh, we have a Kurdish um, political prisoner uh, story we have it's a bunch of story and it's an ever evolving story but we never uh we never go outside of a story of the social justice mm. and environmental justice. Oh, yeah, I forget to mention, um, uh, there's actually a story from Blockhead Ironwork as well. Yes, with the rope climbing and banner dropping and the students' climate strike. So, like, if you, if you never, if never, if you never come to Oh wait, I forget um the lizard the, mm-hmm. the, from Uncle Kevin. Mm-hmm. 
Arabana land. Yeah, we bring the lizard story as well. So if you never come, you better come to this. Like you never, you never, you never witness how organic and how how passionate is each each um artist mm. on the stage because it, it's there. It's our story, you know. Like I'm 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 sharing my story with Papon's story, especially so. Um, with true music and in true uh, performing arts and like for us and for this different artists from different community it's um it's our culture too you know like uh, arts is always being a medium of storytelling for, for West Papua music is our protest culture every time so all, all this all the props in um yeah, in the theater, we we actually bring it from street. Mm. Yeah, so like the the speaker, the Willoughbyan speaker, and the integral, <laughs> everything, everything, and like I really recommend everyone's to come and yeah, watch it because yeah, after that people were like, oh, we didn't know where's with Papua is. Oh, we didn't know what's happening in Palestine. Oh, we didn't know. Oh, there's actually you know this happening in Woomera detention center mm. and. Yeah, people realize that, oh, they're going to look on Google or they're going to talk to friends to friends. And, yeah, this is how we, mm. you know, um, sharing or we raise awareness of these different causes happening all over the world. Absolutely. Theatre <laughs> is such a powerful way to communicate these ideas to our community and to mm. reach people that mm-hmm. might not have known about these struggles previously. Yep. Um, and lastly... Yeah, would you like to share a bit more about this fundraiser that's happening? Not this weekend, but next weekend. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, invitation for everyone. So it's a one-day event. I'd love to call it like a anti-capitalist social club. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, where, you know, all of us, you know, like the people who have the same you know, humanity, same consciousness, how can we create a space together? And, yeah, so most of the hip-hop artists there and punk artists there have a political message. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there will be... We're going to... Um, and now we incorporate spoken words. So first two hours will be um, poetry sets, like pop-up pop mm-hmm. poetry cafe. And then after that, continue with two alternate stage. So between punk stage and DJ stage, and there'll be five, six different punk band and six different hip hop mm. rappers. So like everyone please calm down and there'll be food, there'll be drink and no one turn away. If you're First Nation or you're a refugee background or you're living around the area, please don't don't be shy, don't hesitate. You get free entry. And there will be food and drink as well, and it's all ages. So, yeah, it's a win-win. Like, we're all having fun, and then the money, we're going to use it for good causes. And we're planning to do more. Mm. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yes. So, for listeners, those details are Rise Up, 2.1 Concrete Jungle. It's happening at Collingwood Underground Car Park <laughs> next Saturday, the 14th of March, from 1 to 11 p.m. Thank you so much, Poro, for joining Thank us on the show this morning. Thank you for and now I think we're going to head into a track, um, and this one's by Calypso Sidestep. I think we're going to watch. Am I right? Am I right? I'm a face by a past like shadow. 
genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast on 8.55am. And just before that song that we played, which was by Calypso Sidestep, we were talking with Pro Bibi about the Concrete Jungle fundraiser happening on Saturday the 14th of March. And now we are joined by Yatu Widders Hunt. And Yatu is a proud Anawan and Dangawuti woman, um, and she's a communications professional and founder of the online community Australian Indigenous Fashion. Welcome, Yatu. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us here on 3CR. Can you first uh, start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So um, I have very proud Aboriginal heritage from the northern tablelands of New South Wales, but grew up mostly in Sydney. And um, I've always sort of worked in the communications and media space in government and also in First Nations media. And um, through that, I got exposed to a lot of what was going on in the Indigenous fashion community. And that sort of really inspired some of the work I do today. And can you tell us a little bit about this online platform that you have, um, Australian Indigenous Fashion? Yeah, so about two years ago I started an Instagram community, um, which is now also on, on Facebook, to really showcase the diversity of Indigenous fashion and some of the incredible artists and designers that are um, that are working around the country. And it was really sort of born of frustration, I guess, because... I was so lucky to get to see all of these beautiful works and travel around the country, but I just couldn't see it anywhere else in our mainstream fashion magazines or on television screens, so I decided to to put it all on a page. Amazing. And it's just such a beautiful um, like array of artwork on your Instagram. It's so colourful. Yeah, I think that's sort of um, what surprises a lot of people that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of designers and, and clothing and artwork looks incredibly contemporary and cutting edge and new. And it's also very diverse. We have so many, um, countries in Australia with different styles, different stories to tell, um, access to different natural fibers. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it is that it all looks incredibly different. Um, but it's all anchored in the in the same ancient tradition of telling story. Mm. And can you tell us a bit more about how you see storytelling can develop through um, Aboriginal fashion? Yeah, well, I, for me, I always say that um, Aboriginal fashion is a continuation of a storytelling tradition that has been unbroken for over 60,000 years. So I think it's a really beautiful, gentle, fun way for us to share our stories with the world um, and get people thinking and invite them to start working with us and hearing about us and hearing from us about what's important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. But I also really love the way that the the story continues with the wearer. So when you buy a piece of Aboriginal fashion and you wear it out into the world, it also starts conversations and it makes you feel proud and connected um, and reflects your own identity. So I think there's there's a couple of different layers of story, but I just really love the fact that it's it's a way to continue who we are as a people. And what do you hope will be discussed um, at the event this Saturday happening at M Pavilion? 
Oh, this Saturday is going to be a really exciting event, and we have some uh, amazing storytellers coming along, Prina Drummond, Shelley Ware, and Sandy Greenwood, um, and I'll be there as well. And we'll, we'll all actually be sharing the story of our favourite designer piece that has been created by a First Nations artist or in collaboration with First Nations artists. And we're all going to, you know, talk about really different things, whether that's about how it supports our own understanding of identity or how it speaks to principles of collaboration and what story that particular piece tells. So I think there'll be a beautiful opportunity for these great storytellers to share, but there'll also be an opportunity for the audience to ask questions and engage directly with us. Fantastic. And can you give us maybe a little bit of a sneak peek (laughs) into um, what you're going to be talking about on Saturday? Oh yeah, sure. Well, I'm going to be I'm going to be wearing a, a Melbourne d- designer, um, which I'm really excited to be doing. And I guess for me, I, I want to talk about um, as someone that's sort of grown up off country, um, how I've sort of engaged with fashion, design, and art as a way to reimagine my Aboriginal identity in contemporary Australia. And I think what what opportunities there are to start a bigger conversation around our national identity through style and design. Mm. And when you're talking with um, Aboriginal fashion designers and artists, what have you found is really different, the different processes that they're exploring and using um, in comparison Mm. to mainstream fashion industry? I think um, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander fashion designers are really pioneering um, the concept of sustainability, and it's a really it's a bit of a buzzword in the fashion industry at the moment about thinking about using our natural resources and not overproducing and treating people ethically. And I think I'm actually really proud to think that Aboriginal designers in Australia have been designing in that way this entire time. Mm. So I think what's really beautiful is when you visit, you know, remote art centres or even fashion designers working in the big cities, they're always making being mindful of the earth and the country on which we stand. And I think that's a really beautiful thing that that we do. Um, and I think the fashion industry actually has a lot to learn from our communities and the way that we work. Mm, absolutely. And can you tell listeners about some of the artists and fashion designers that you're most excited about at the moment? I really love um, the label Nali. It's spelled N-G-A-L-I, and it's a Melbourne label. Um, and they make beautiful silk dresses in gorgeous sort of earthy tones, and they're beautiful pieces for the autumn and winter seasons. Um, we're also seeing a whole bunch of swimwear and resort wear coming through from Indigenous fashion designers. Um, and one of my favourites is Leandra. She makes these um, beautiful, sustainable, actually eco-friendly bikinis and one pieces that are black and white monochrome and also beautiful earthy green. So they're the two I've, I've sort of got my eye on at the moment. Oh, incredible. <laughs> and um, I think we might have to wrap it up there, Yatu, but how can listeners um, follow your work? Um, yeah, I'd love everyone to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is Oz Indigenous Fashion. That's spelled A-U-S, Indigenous Fashion. And we're also now a Facebook community. So um, follow us and you'll see daily inspiration and content from what's happening around the country in Indigenous fashion and design. Oh, and I absolutely encourage listeners to, yeah, um, follow that Facebook page because it's just such beautiful um, art, actually, not just fashion, um, that, yeah, you can view. And, yeah, Yatu is going to be speaking um, at an event 
uh, this Saturday, the 7th of March, from 2.30 to 4.30 p.m. on Indigenous Storytelling Through Fashion. So definitely check that out at M Pavilion this weekend. Thanks, Yatu. Thanks so much. And I think now we're going to head into another track, um, and this one is by Nari, and it's called Shiva.
And that track was Shiver by Nari. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're about to have a conversation with uh, Bron from the Department of Homo Affairs and Charlie from Transaction Warong. So welcome, Charlie and Bron. How are you? Good, thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, I'm doing very well. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. So, um, Bron, uh, would you be able to tell listeners a little bit about the Department of Homo Affairs and what your aims are? And then I'll, I'll throw to Charlie. Um, sure. Um, yeah, the Department of Homo Affairs is a, a radical queer collective, and we seek to playfully and performatively disrupt colonial narratives um, and nationalist white border policies. Um, we stand in, for, in we stand in solidarity with First Nations struggles, and um, we also want to generate queer culture and invite our communities, our queer communities, to get on board and participate in um, First Nations struggles. Awesome. And, uh, Charlie, could you tell listeners a little bit about Transaction Warang and um, what your group's been up to? Yeah, so Transaction Warang is a uh, anti-capitalist and anti-colonialist uh, uh, trans-autonomous collective that's uh, based in Warang, um, or known as its colonial name of Sydney. So we not organise a number of actions around um, different trans events, the most important one that is upcoming is that we're organising a rally and march for Transdate Visibility, um, which is the second time that we've done it, and we're looking to have it as an uh, annual march and, and, and a stalwart in the queer calendar for us to coalesce around um, trans rights um, and fight for a more radical form of liberation that's not really present in kind of the landscape of LGBTQI politics at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And so I'd love to get an idea of how both of your groups have been messing with the status quo this past Mardi Gras. So I'll start with you, Bron, um, but Charlie, feel free to jump in. No worries. Sure. Um, yeah, so we decided to target the Liberal Party float um, because of the recent, um, over the last year, um, plans to tour a replica of the endeavour around the continent known as Australia. Uh, and we, we just, we know from talking to First Nations people, from receiving the call out from First Nations people that this is going to be a traumatizing, a re-traumatizing event, uh, all around the coast as it tries to dock illegally on First Nations lands. And so we decided to, um, give the Liberal Party hell about it essentially by, um, making a replica float that was, um, a replica endeavor it was actually a, a blown-up crocodile with a giant turd on its back and the Endeavour sails coming out of the top of it um, that said Croc of Shit, which is what we have deemed the uh, circumnavigation to be. And so we we dressed up as uh, Department of Homo Affairs officers and were pushing back this, this fake replica. And at the same time, we were also pushing back the Liberal Party float and we held them up for about 15 minutes um, stopped the parade to really make this statement about um, the Resist 250 campaign and to draw attention to this particular campaign. Yeah, awesome. And I think that's been all over social media. Um, so um, I know also that at the parade, three of your members were removed from the parade by New South Wales police. Um, 
and the mainstream media has been reporting that the police were forced to remove the protesters due to quote-unquote unauthorized entry. So I'm just wondering how this type of reporting and even the event itself kind of naturalizes the role of police in these LGBTQI plus spaces. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely exposed to, to me and to others the, the farce of having police at the festival, um, at, at the protest, what should be a protest and a celebration of protest, because Mardi Gras started, of course, in 1978 as a protest, ended in rampant brut- police brutality. So for the police to then come out and say that they're protecting our rights by stopping us from having a playful protest, which, you know, we had our wristbands on, we... Um, we had our um, we had our right to be there as staging a, pol- a peaceful protest, and for them to remove us, to remove three of our officers, um, you know, forcefully and without good reason, we were being peaceful. Um, just exposes um, exposes the, the brutality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I just want to jump in here and just kind of reflect on the significance of that as well. Is that this is really coming at a time when so many of the tensions of what's going on in Mardi Gras as an organisation, you know, the fact that they have so many powerful forces in their organisations, to the Liberals, to the corporates, to the cops, and then on the other side you have these grassroots resistance movements, the conflict between that is now exploding and we're seeing that it's going to break one side or the other. And it's clear that it's breaking in the interest of powerful forces and not of grassroots protest. You know, the organisation really needs to ask the question, why is protest happening in our parade in the first place? Mardi Gras was never a place that was that experienced an internal protest against, against essentially other floats or other participants. So Mardi Gras really needs to ask the question, where do they stand on, on that side of the conflict? You know, we've seen sit-ins and other types of peaceful protests in other prides around the world where the police never show this kind of overreach. You know, it's absolutely disgusting. This is something that the New South Wales Police has made in terms of overreach and excessive policing that we don't see elsewhere. And then they have the ball for the next day to turn around and say that the Department of Home Affairs weren't acting in the spirit of Mardi Gras. Like the police are the people who determine the spirit of Mardi Gras. It is absolutely insane. So, you know, we really need to see that Mardi Gras needs to be able to hold a town hall or a general meeting for their community and members to tell them what they need to do about this because they've got to start listening to their grassroots member and members and not to powerful interests. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, Bron, I was wondering if I could get a bit more of your thoughts as well about, um, I guess, the sort of queer capitalism that kind of surrounds Mardi Gras and um, and your perspective on, on, as Charlie said, the way that this is going to break one side or the other. Yeah, I mean, it, it does personally, um, it really, it, I find it very disruptive to me how corporate Mardi Gras has become. Um, I, we, the Department of Home Affairs has more of an interest in targeting the, the police presence, um, the float presence and also the liberal float as part of Mardi Gras, um, because they are representatives of the, the state, like the colonial state, um, 
So the corporate interests are, I think, um, definitely it's profiting off this, uh, obviously off this capitalist state. Um, and they are a part of why Mardi Gras has started to go down this wrong path um, of of not being able to celebrate protest because the capitalist state doesn't want us to be celebrating protest, doesn't want us to be making protest, doesn't want us to be making change because that disrupts their profits and their intentions. Um, so I think they, they all, all of those things kind of go hand in hand in like supporting essentially the, uh, the colonial patriarchal state that we still do live under and like the police force in particular, um, are law enforcement officers. They are enforcing the law of the colonial state, they're enforcing the law of the capitalist state um, that continues to inflict violence on First Nations people um, in so many ways and continues to inflict violence on trans people as well, like, brutally. Um, And as queers, I think we... um, who were so recently um, made criminals ourselves by this state for who we are, you know, until so recently it was illegal to be gay, um, lesbian... Uh, and it still was so recently that um, the the laws against transgender people were changed and trans people still received so much violence from this state that um, queer people uh, who received other different forms of privilege who are like is passing or have the um, have race and class and able bodied privilege we really need to stand in solidarity with those other with with people um, who are still fighting that system who are still struggling against it yeah hundred percent. So important. Um, and so I know there's um, a lot of value in direct action and, um, you know, disrupting the parade. But I was also wondering whether the Department of Homo Affairs or Transaction Warung has been up to any other events um, outside of this. Um, just briefly, um, what have you been talking about around this? Yeah, um, you may be... Um from the Department of Homo Affairs, want to talk about what you're doing um, or what's happening around the Guayajul Bajikul resistance itself on the on the actual day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we uh, will be standing in solidarity with the um, Guigal and Bajikul uh, Tribal Elders Council who have called for a mass um, move onto their country at, La per- at, um, at Kamei, um now known as Botany Bay, um, and that is from the 26th of April until about the 6th of May. Um, and that is when the replica endeavour is due to uh, enter Botany Bay and to Kamei. Um, and there's going to be a massive resistance of First Nations mob and allies um, during that week to really demonstrate how, um, how much resistance um, there is to this particular um, event that is... In, in a lineage of 250 years of indigenous resistance by the Guigal and Bajigal people mm. of that of that land, and we also are working in uh, solidarity and in support um, with a group in Sydney called Wreck the Endeavour, mm-hmm. that is a newly formed First Nations-led um, campaign that is operating from Gadigal land. Awesome. Yeah, and Transact and Morang are. Supporting this resistance as well, um, we have a number of members that um, will be participating um, and have participated in some of the uh, previous actions, um, including one that took place in the Maritime Museum. Um, the biggest thing that we're kind of focusing on is our Trans Day of Visibility Rally, and really, you know, this is the next day 
in the queer calendar that's really big mm-hmm. after um, Mardi Gras, and we really want to establish it as a place where we can actually have an annual celebration that is dedicated to radical roots. Awesome. And we have a number of demand, demands that um, we have that um, uh, that we are issuing from this rally, which are kill the uh, religious freedoms bill, demand all gender affirming care be covered on Medicare, uh, the de- complete decriminalisation of sex work across the country, uh, no black death in custody and proper justice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have suffered police brutality and raise the rate of a new start and awesome. say no to cancer welfare. Cool. Well, thank you so much, uh, Bron and Charlie, for coming on to talk to us today um, and really appreciate your work. And we'll pop a link to where people can find more information about you in the description. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I think that might be it for the end of the show, Priya. Yeah. Thanks so much, listeners, for joining us this morning. And we'll be back next Thursday. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.